It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 133, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Jeff and Elise Higley of Oshala Farm in southwest Oregon's Applegate Valley raised 37 acres of medicinal and culinary herbs for the wholesale herb market, as well as for direct and value-added production. Jeff and Elise provide insights into their business model for working with medicinal herbs and how they went about getting the business established. We discuss how they balance their labor needs, infrastructure utilization, and production cycle for over 70 annual, perennial, and biennial crops, and how they have developed processes that provide their products with standout quality and a significant wow factor, something that's surprisingly important even in the wholesale market that forms the economic backbone of their business. We also discuss property selection for medicinal herb production, how they've used regulatory changes as an opportunity to grow their business, and employee management in a business that is even scratchier, sweatier, and dustier than vegetable production. We also dig into the impacts of the green rush prompted by Oregon's legalization of marijuana and how that's affected their farm economics and how they've adapted to those changes. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCS America. Dot com and by CoolBot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. Elise and Jeff Higley, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thank you. So I'd like to start off today by having you tell us about your farm. What are you guys growing and, and how much of you grow, are you guys growing and how are you getting that to market? All right. Yeah. So um, our farm is a total of 113 certified organic acres. Um, we have 45 acres irrigated and about 65 that's certified organic wildcrafted. Um, we're growing this year 37 acres of that 45 irrigated and we grow about 70 something crops. Mostly we specialize in herbs. So we grow medicinal and culinary herbs for the herb industry. Um, we sell a lot of that wholesale. Um, we also have a line of teas and spices and a few other value added products, but we mostly sell to product manufacturers and kind of distributors of herbs. That's an interesting business to me. The, this idea that you guys are, at least for a good portion of your product, you're really stepped back from the sales and distribution process. Yeah, yes and no, right? So we also, uh, we do demos, we sell wholesale, but we also do a lot of demos in grocery stores and we still do farmer's market. And we also deliver ourselves in our local area and then we have a distributor um, for the West Coast. How does that business break out for you guys? Like what percentage of what you do is going through your wholesale distribution channels and how much are you guys marketing directly yourselves? I'd say that 85% of our gross sales are what I'd call wholesale. Um, so that would either be going to large product makers or to, um, to distributors that then sell to other smaller product makers or large product makers. So I'd say that 85% is that and another 15% would be more direct. So either through grocery stores um, with our value added products or um, direct to retailer. And so when we talk about who you're selling those bulk herbs to, are these companies like, and I'm thinking of Frontier Herbs in Iowa or Herb Farm out there in Oregon? 
Yeah, very similar to those types of companies. Yeah. So not necessarily those ones, but um, those same types. So Herb Farm's a large product maker. They make products, but people that make tinctures, teas, salves, bombs, body products, um, even you know, we get calls from people that make pet foods and, and all sorts of different esoteric things. So yeah, mostly that level. And then also distributors of herbs like Frontier, which they then buy from a lot of places all over the world and they sell to Homer Bliss and also to other product makers. What kind of crops are you guys growing then for those bulk herb markets? Well, we grow a lot of different ones. So, I mean, everything from astragalus root to ashwagandha, stinging nettle, tulsi, echinacea. But um, in the in the medicinal side, we grow like 50 different crops. And then we grow another, you know, 15 to 20 culinary herbs. Um, so it really runs the whole gambit. Everything that we can kind of grow here that we can make a profit on, um, we kind of grow. And then we also work with um, buyers in the winter. So we grow mostly, I would say, what, Jeff, almost 90% on contract. So our grow, our crop plan changes every year, depending on what people are needing in the winter. So, and of course, now we have customers, you know, buyers wanting more things. And we're like, hey, we're already contracted out with uh, from the winter time. So... We always talk to to new growers about this idea that you should you know sell it, sell it before you grow it, right? Talk right. to a restaurant, talk to the store, find out what they want and how much they want. Now, you guys are doing that same thing. Are you actually contracted to grow a certain yield of crop or a certain acreage of a crop? How does that work? Typically, it's yield. So we'll be working with either a product manufacturer or, um, you know, a wholesale buyer. And they'll say, hey, we need 2000 pounds of Angelica root this year. And, um, you know, and it's a it's a back and forth on on the pricing and things like that. But we decide whether or not that's something we want to take on. And and I'd say we're probably 95 to 97 percent um, growing on contract. And then the rest of that goes to our value added products. So we don't do a lot of spec growing, which is which is nice. You know, on the flip side, we take a little lower price for that. So if somebody says, I want 2000 pounds of astragalus root and you come up with 1500 pounds of astragalus root, what are the consequences for that? Um, you know, a lot of it's about communication. The The reality is sometimes, you know, they'll have to find it someplace else. It's not great. You may not get that contract again next year if you, you know, don't show that, hey, we're going to increase the the thing and or increase our, our acreage in that and somehow be able to meet the numbers next year. If you're consistently not meeting numbers, it, it can definitely become a problem. But I think, you know, the seed industry is very similar. There's there's a certain expectation to bring the product in, but they also experience a lot of people that don't show up with what they're supposed to. And um, they always keep separate extra channels and, and contract with a few extra people. But really to make a name in the business, you need to show up with the poundage. Yeah. And I'd like to add to, you know, it's kind of this education, education process with our buyers in the winter when they ask for, for instance, you know, somebody wanted, uh, you know, 1500 pounds of echinacea root. Uh, and I said, well, we can certainly do that for you, but it's going to be two years from now. <laughs> We're not going to be able to plant that right now and get you echinacea root. So it's kind of, you know, I, I like that kind of dance with education with the, with the buyers as well. And it is a long-term commitment. And like Jeff said, we really work on having good communication and a good relationship. And we do everything we can um, to make sure that we come up with the agree, agreed poundage that we're supposed to and the best quality possible because we know that long term, you know, those people are counting on it and that we probably won't get recontracted for that um, crop again. 
if we don't come through and it puts them in a really tough spot. So um, we really try our best. And so, you know, Jeff is notorious for overplanting <laughs> so that we make sure we have enough. And then I have to deal with how else we're going to sell the rest of it, which we have. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's where the value added sales part maybe fits into that. Is that provide you an extra market when you have overages of certain crop? It's kind of how we started our you know, originally when we first started with the contract orders, we thought, okay, this is great. We're going to do large volume. It's going to be a lower price point, but it's going to work for the farm. It works for our budget. We know how much staff we can have. You know, it really helps us for long-term planning. And then we ended up with this overage and it was like, oh, well, you know, I go to all these herb conferences and I talk to other herbalists and I deal with, you know, small manufacturers and I'm like, hey, hey, I have an extra 50 pounds of marshmallow root. Do you need it? And so that's kind of how we started our online herb store that we have and it's been really pretty archaic and we're trying to work on putting a better platform together to make it easier for like a retail buyer to buy you know four ounces of herb but right now people email they're like hey we heard you had some amazing calendula can we get some or you know whatever so um that's that's kind of geared us toward now doing a lot more direct to customer and direct to the consumer which is a whole nother game in the world. I think we kind of got ahead of ourselves too in, in some aspect in how we got into actually doing herbs and the value added product side. Really, Elise was wanting to be an herbalist. I wanted to be a vegetable farmer um, when we moved here to Oregon. And she had these ideas of this tea line and, and these different product lines. And she kept asking me to grow these things. And when we first went out for contracts, I went with the list that I had to grow for a lease. Um, so we went specifically after contracts of things that I already knew I needed to grow so that I could kind of pay for for the crop, pay for the, the work and then come back and, and use that extra or that overage in our own value added products. And how long have you guys been farming at Oshala Farm? Well, we've been here at Oshala. We just had our four year anniversary in June. So this is our fifth growing season. Um, you know, I've been farming off and on for a couple of decades now, but um, full time, we've been farming for about eight years. And here at o Oshala, this is our fifth season. So still fairly new. I mean, um, that first season was we moved down in we closed escrow June 6th and we moved down with uh, our three interns and 100,000 starts and 15 beehives and um and some contracts for herbs and we were determined to make them happen. And we didn't get anything into the ground until the 4th of July, but we still made a season happen. And, you know, we still grew a lot of vegetables at that point. I think we put in almost seven or nine acres of vegetables our first year down here. And then again, probably another five or seven acres of vegetables the second year. And, and now we really only grow vegetables for ourselves. And so those vegetables provided you with, with cash flow while you were getting those perennial crops established. Exactly. Yeah, that was the real challenge. We also, you know, we bought land uh, at a time where it's land's not cheap here on the West Coast and especially farmland. There's been a big land grab. And, you know, we had to get into a fairly expensive piece of property with a with a big mortgage and that required a certain amount of money each month. So we really had to look at it as, you know, we had still kids at home, um, though they were older. But we we really had to look at it as, you know, we need to make this business work right out of the gate. And that's going to require a certain scale. And um, because we need to make a certain amount of money, it wasn't like we were on a small acreage. Um, so that was really part of the challenge is how do we, how do we generate enough revenue? Um, 
And like you said, keeping the annual cash flow going and the day-to-day cash flow going to keep the wheels on until we can see some of these other money crops at two years down the road. Jeff has still got the uh, vegetable farming in his blood because every so often we go out to the field in the middle of the echinacea, I see like, you know, 200 feet of radishes or something growing. I'm like, wait a second, what's going on here? Oh, it's got a little extra seed I thought I'd plant. <laughs> radishes could be medicinal. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Not too many radishes out there anymore, but you know, there's always something snuck away. (laughs) What percentage of the crops that you grow are perennials versus annuals? Uh, I'd say about 50, 50. Um, well, I'd rephrase that. We, we have biennials. Um, we have annuals, we have perennials and then we have perennials. We treat as biennials. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our root crops are actually perennial crops, but we treat them as a biennial. So we'll, we'll, plant them. We'll grow them out of full season. We'll grow, we'll overwinter them. We'll grow them out a whole nother season and then we'll harvest them that fall. So even though that plant could live for many, many more years, like echinacea, we're usually harvesting echinacea root in the second fall. Right. Cause harvesting that is a destructive process. It's not like you're snipping the top of a sage plant off. Right. It's a, it's a, a it's a field ending deal. Um, you know, some of the roots, are pretty, I mean, some of our crops like comfrey, for instance, we harvest leaf and root. And at first I started replanting comfrey, but I quickly realized that just the small little pieces of root that got left behind would create quite a nice field without doing anything. So, um, you know, we definitely deal with some pretty invasive stuff. So that's part of the, the challenge is uh, kind of maintaining these systems over the long term is, is it, you know, it's a balancing act. So something like the comfrey, do you just grow that in the same place year after year after year? Well, yeah, we basically decided we weren't going to put... At first, we we had a lot of opportunity to take on comfrey contracts. And we thought, you know, this is something that's... It was a fairly good return. Um, but then we quickly realized that we wouldn't be able to get those fields clean again, potentially. Um, so now we have a comfrey patch that's kind of permanent. It's not very large, but it gets us the poundage we need. But we're also not taking any more comfrey contracts because we kind of saw that, you know, we might not be able to get this out of there very easily. And we're going to have several years of these things popping up from from little root pieces. Um, So, yeah, sometimes you get into things and you realize maybe they're not the best thing to really get into. When we talk about 50% of your crops being annuals, 50 being perennials, is that on a land basis or is that on a, a volume of sales basis or just on the names of the crops basis? Um, it's pretty much on a land basis. Our crop system, we sell 99% of everything we do. Or I guess actually we're, we're growing more fresh stuff every year, but maybe we're down to 97% now, but is dried. So um, our biggest bottleneck at this point is drying space. Um, so we really need to plan our cropping out over the year for a succession in the drying bay. And so we're planning on selling stuff all year long so I can keep that drying bay going for that dryer going from the 1st of April until the 1st of December, 24 hours a day. So, um, you know, it's really tough. If you do too many root crops, you're going to need to increase your drying space. and You're going to have more of a, of a, a hiccup in the fall where you get this, you know, total bottleneck. If you do too many tops, then it's all July and August. And, and then the rest of the season, you're not really doing anything. The perennial crops help us in the early season because like the things like nettle and a lot of these, these things that come up early in the spring, get a, give us tops on the second year, um, help us kind of balance out that season for us. So we're really kind of always chasing drier space. 
And it's also a juggle with the contracts because sometimes like this winter, we may talk to somebody who wants this great root contract, but we might look at already from last year, what we've promised people and be like, Hey, we can't meet that capacity. It's going to not going to work. We can only take more top contracts on right now or something. So pretty interesting. We can only take more top contracts (laughs) (laughs) or flower picking, but then that's a labor issue. (laughs) Right. So, so talk to me about, and, and obviously every herb has its, has its own life cycle, but what, if you had to pick a typical perennial herb, what's the process from, from the point when you're starting those seeds through to the point when you've got that product ready for sale? Well, I guess we could take echinacea since we already mentioned it. So echinacea, A, we depend on the variety that we're growing, um, typically purpurea or angustifolia. Purpurea is easier to grow. Um, so we would usually start that in the greenhouse sometime in uh, March, most likely, and transplant that out in mid-May to the first couple of weeks of June. Um, and then it's kind of like a typical vegetable scene. So weed, 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 weed all year. <laughs> Um, that first season, typically we can get a tops harvest in the fall. Um, so we could usually get enough growth to, in echinacea, it's really nice. There's a lot of products for sale. The seeds medicinal, the, um, you know, they use the whole, uh, herbaceous plant, the flowers and the roots. So there's a lot to pull from. So that first year, oftentimes we can get, um, we can get tops. The second year, we can either choose to take tops right before we harvest for roots, or what we'll often do is let it go all the way to where the flowers die out and we can get a seed harvest. Then we'll go ahead and and, uh, mow that crop down and come in and dig the root and process the root for, for sale. And what does that processing step look like? Well, it depends. So, I mean, we, we basically have four different crops we harvest when you look at it. It's seed, flowers, uh, herbaceous tops, and um, roots. So each of those has a slightly different process. Um, with the roots, we run it through a, a barrel washer, similar to what the veggie uh, farmers do, a um, little bit bigger one. And, and oftentimes we try to do some destoning and some other stuff. Um, and then we'll actually chip the product, run it through a chipper that we, we set up where the shoot goes straight out into our dryer. So we'll chip the product straight into the dryer because a lot of those roots are too dense to be able to dry the, the, the core um, without opening them up. And then we put it on our dryer cycle. Um, you know, typically we're trying to dry things with 48 to 72 hours. Um, if it gets much over, you know, if we're looking at 96 hours or more in drying time, we start to really worry about meeting the microbiological standards uh, for the for the crop, which is a whole nother challenge. Is this like a forced air dryer or are you guys heating it? Can you tell me a little bit about, about what that looks like? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of different... A lot of the different farms have different styles and we use a few different drying techniques. Um, we do put some stuff on screens, like a lot of uh, calendula flowers and things, but for the most part, we use forced air drying, which is either like a batch dryer or a bin dryer. Um, they're very similar to like what the hops farmers use or even, um, Grain dryers can be modified to to do this type of work or tobacco dryers. Those are similar systems that are out there that could that could be easily equated. Um, so we're running air 
over. It's all about having enough uh, CFM, enough uh, airflow over your crop. And then each crop is at a different temperature. So we usually start at a higher temperature to kill off anything that's on the surface of that plant to help keep our micros low. So we'll have an initial uh, elevated temperature for, you know, three to five hours that um, the core inside of the plant's not getting to that temperature, but the outside starts to warm up and can kill off potential pathogens. And then we'll dry, bring it down to a long-term temperature that we run that crop at for the, the entire dry cycle. Um, you know, it all sounds really easy, but it, there's a lot of art to it. These bays, you know, every crop has different airflow capacity. Um, each bay, drying bay that we have, the air bounces off the walls in different ways. And you, you learn, you know, I have to add a little bit more on this side of the dryer. And when it hits the wall here, this dries out faster. So we're in there turning the product to get an even dry. And um, basically, we need to bring our crop down below 12% humidity um, or 12% moisture content in order to. Um, be stable to bag and then send to our buyers. And each, and each plant kind of has its own personality, you know, that we've gotten used to working with over the years. You know, for instance, California poppy, it's like, it's a drought tolerant plant. So if you don't hit it and zap it with some heat, it holds all the moisture inside the root and it doesn't dry out in the inside. So there's all these little, you know, tricks and things that you learn. Um, some plants are super mucilaginous and slimy when you start to cut them open. So you've got to deal with all of that, like comfrey. So it's definitely challenges with, you, with each one. Each unique little plant. I would imagine that's a really big challenge for you guys. You know, you've only been in the business for four years, but you're growing, you know, all of these crops out there. And it's not like you can just pick up Elliot Coleman's book off the shelf or <laughs> any of 20 other books off the shelf and learn how to grow them. How have you guys gone about learning how to make echinacea work at the same time you're learning how to make comfy work at the same time you're learning about making astragalus work? Yeah, I mean, that's it's been a huge learning curve, especially for me because Elise was an herbalist and especially in the beginning, we were getting phone calls for crops and I'd never even heard of these things. Um, you know, so I'd be like, well, I, I don't know. Let me look it up. How do you spell that? Um, you know, so it was definitely a giant learning curve without a doubt. We wouldn't have been able to do it without, um, without a good mentor and without people that have led the way before us. And I think that's one of the things that with agriculture, that's so amazing is there's people in the industry that are really open to sharing um, what they've learned. And, and we've been able to reach out to people and learn from people that have been doing it. And, you know, no matter what niche you're in, I think it's, there's a lot to be said for reaching out to people that have been doing it for years. And, um, you know, we at least really wanted to grow more herbs and she, dragged me down to this uh, conference put on by the United Plant Savers, um, which is an organization uh, about saving endangered medicinal herbs. And um, they have every couple of years what they call planting the future conference, which is all about growing endangered medicinal herbs um, in the field. So taking these crops that, you know, traditionally only been wildcrafted and figuring out how to propagate them and, and actually growing them organically so we can meet the demand of you know, modern day, because there's just too many people wanting these things to go out and harvest them off the mountain. So that was the first time it was at, held at Herb Farm. And um, that was the first time that uh, I had seen these things grown in rows. Like I'd always seen like little gardens of herbs. And it just, 
it just didn't really appeal to the farmer side of me. I didn't see how we can economically make it work. And then part of that, there was a, it was a two day thing and there was a bunch of great teachers there. There was Richo check from uh, horizon herbs, which is now strictly medicinals. There was Matt Dabala, who's the head farmer from herb farm teaching classes and Mark Disharoon, who's been a longtime farmer there. And there was also Mark Wheeler from Pacific botanicals. And, and uh, the next day we got a tour of uh, Pacific botanicals. We got a tour of the herb farms lab. We also got a tour of Richo's uh, seed farm. And I just, when I, especially seeing herb farm and then Pacific botanicals, I saw, okay, I could see how we could do this. I could see how we could grow these crops. And I, I felt a really good connection with Mark Wheeler. Um, who's been doing this for 35 years now, one of the real pioneers in, um, herb growing in the United States and North America. He's done an incredible job over the years of, of taking a lot of crops out of the wild and figuring out how to propagate them. And a lot of these things, it took them 15, 20 years of trial and error of figuring it out. And, you know, we wouldn't be doing this today without his, his guidance and help. And, um, you know, I asked him if I can mention his name and he said, please mention that I'm way too busy to be talking to people. So don't <laughs> seek me out. Um, Cause I didn't want to throw him under the bus, but I also want to really honor what, um, what that means when, you know, I, I remember the first years where I took all these contracts and, you know, there's such a limited window in the greenhouse and seeing like such low germination. And that's a big issue with these herb crops is the germination and, and being able to go to them and him and his, and his staff and they go, Hey, here's the soil mixes we've learned for all of these specific crops over the years. And then come back the next season to get 90 something percent germination on those same crops that had total failure the year before. Those are things that, you know, that's 15 years, 20 years, 30 years of experience and trial and error that, that you can't buy. And the only way you can really seek that is, is going after people who know it. Um, and there are books in the organic farming world. And, and of course, Elliot Coleman's books was one of my main, you know, main starts in this whole thing. But, um, and uh, Jeff and Melanie, Carpenter just put out a great book on growing medicinal herbs, but it's still a little smaller scale than what we do. Um, and they do a wonderful job with their products, really high quality, beautiful stuff. And they're making it work for them. But, you know, we had to go a little larger scale to make our economics work. Did you guys set off to have a 45 acre herb farm or did that, was that driven once you guys discovered how the marketplace worked that you were operating in? I I always kind of joke that the, the plants kind of dictated our plan because <laughs> they had something in mind for us. You know, we, like we said, you know, Jeff's background was in uh, veggie farming and my background was in medicinal herbs. And, you know, with the, the line of teas I wanted to do, I was really trying to get, you know, locally grown herbs, which I thought in Southern Oregon, like how hard could that be? And then, you know, get Jeff to grow whatever he could amongst the veggies that he was producing. And then, uh, we just found that that wasn't happening in the herb world. It was like 90% was getting imported, you know, stuff that we thought like nettle or lemon balm and oregano, basil, like that's all being imported. And for the most part, and we thought this is crazy, you know? So as you know, Jeff was kind of having these aha moments with, uh, you know, the crops being grown, the, the herbs being grown in crops and fields, you know, I was having this like, oh my gosh, this is such a huge demand. Like if we're growing these anyways, we should reach out and see, you know, who else needs them? And sure enough, all these other companies were like, hey, if you're growing that, we'd like to grow it. And 
we at that same time ended up, we were in a partnership with somebody on another farm and it just wasn't working out. Our value systems were really different. So we were looking for land. We had just gotten contracts. It was like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And Jeff and I are so like, have such integrity. If we say we're going to do something, we have to do it. We're like, it doesn't matter. We're going to like use our life savings. We're going to make these contracts work. You know, we've uh, tried so hard to get them and we're not going to let anybody down. So we ended up, we were looking for, you know, property that, somehow we could get into with, of course, you know, farming jobs. Really, at that point, we had both left our six-digit figure jobs in Southern California and we're farmers in Oregon. <laughs> and so it was a pretty amazing time because everything just happened the right way. And suddenly we were on this big, flat piece of land that Jeff had never farmed on flat land before. It's always been terrace. <laughs> and he was like, holy crap, like, can you believe this place? You know, great water rights and all that stuff. And the financing ended up working out except for we had this huge mortgage that we had to come up with and the plants just lended themselves our way. And so we were really, really fortunate for so many reasons, but I felt like the plants were like, Hey, you need to make this happen. You guys, it's going to be a lot of, you know, work and sweat and, you know, years of hardship. But at the same time, now we can see in our fifth growing season here, like it's, it's really happening and it's really amazing to see. And I'm just so proud that like Jeff, I think what over a quarter of a million dried pounds of herbs went out last year on the national market. And so I'm really proud of that, you know, that we are making a dent in the domestic herb world really makes me feel proud. That's an amazing, what, what does a, what does a quarter million pounds of dried herbs look like? Like how many semi-trailers are we talking? Or how about how many pounds are in wet? <laughs> how many pounds are fresh? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of volume and, um, you know, we've been really challenged in this growth phase and just storage. And, you know, we, we literally take our product out of the dryer and it, we got to send it straight to our buyer. Um, so it's, it's been a bit of a challenge in getting to that scale. But I think one of the real realities that we came to was, like Elise said, 90% of the stuff's being imported. We're not competing against the other herb farmers in the area. We're actually competing against the herb farms in Egypt, in China, in India, in Eastern Europe. Um, because when we're going to these buyers, they're saying, well, I can get it for $4 a pound out of, out of Hungary or out of the, out of the Ukraine. Um, and why would I buy it from you? Um, and, and that's really the reality is in order to be able to be profitable in this, we realized that it is somewhat of a commodity scenario and we had to have a scale and enough acreage to be able to, to meet that, that market. And a lot of the buyers need a certain quantity. So a lot of the people who buy from us can't, they don't want a whole bunch of different lots of something. They need a thousand pounds. It's all the same lot because all the FDA requirements and, the, and all the requirements on the backside for the, pr the productions of it. So we realized quickly that we couldn't just be a five acre herb farm and make it, unfortunately. Well, on 113 acres. Right. And, and with, with that type of a marketing plan, um, you know, obviously if we went a much more direct to, to consumer marketing plan and a lot more value added products, um, but there's a lot of work in that side of it too. And we, we have that side of the market, but it, um, it's a challenge to make, make a name with a new herb product and especially to show the, the, to tell the story of the fact that, Hey, this tea was grown by the farmers who are making the, making the final product. There's no other tea on the market on the shelves next to ours that were grown by the people who made the tea. It's all been imported, um, or bought from other places. So, you know, truly trying to tell, tell that story on the grocery store shelf, that's a whole nother challenge. 
Right. But on that wholesale market, when your buyers say to you, I can get this for X dollars a pound coming out of Hungary or China, why should I buy it from you? What's your answer? You know, sometimes with our buyers, we've done a really good job. And thanks to, uh, you know, Tanya Murray has been great helping us do some of this profit analysis. And Jeff's been working, um, both of us have been working with her for a couple of years. But it was really helpful for us to know exactly what it costs for us to produce, say, like a pound of Tulsi. And so after a couple of years, you know, we used to chase the contracts and say, okay, great, we'll take it. We got to make our mortgage and not really knowing how much money we're making. And now with a, you know, a few years of production with every single, you know, plant, we kind of have a better idea of how much it costs. And so now we're at the point of being able to say to people, hey, this is how much it costs to produce on a Shala farm. We treat our employees well. We give them more than a living wage. We think that we deserve more than a living wage. And if you want to live up to what you're saying on your website or on your product label that you're supporting, you know, local agriculture or whatever it is, then you need to walk your talk. And this is what it costs in America to produce these herbs. And so um, we've found that some companies really understand that and are amazing and like, okay, great. If this is what it costs, we're going to work with it. And then other companies are like, well, we'll get back to you. And then we don't hear from them. So, you know, it's been a really, um, it's been a great like kind of growing process in, in many ways, but also just to be able to stand up and say, we're not going to be taken advantage of and sell our product for less than it costs us to produce it. And we're going to be able to mark it up enough. Um, and also just educating people on like what it takes. You know, I love going to farmer's market or to herb conferences and people are like, oh, these herbs are so amazing. And, you know, I start to tell them like, actually these seeds were, you know, grown out on our farm. This is years of process and work and people really start to appreciate the value of it and be willing to pay a little bit more money that it takes to produce it. I think the other part going off what Elise said is, you know, in the beginning, we had to take whatever we could get. And a lot of times in the herb world, what you can get is not the most profitable stuff. It usually stings you, causes blisters, causes rashes, <laughs> is like fiberglass, um, is super dangerous to inhale. Those are the crops that are given to you first. And, um, and they're not super profitable typically. So you know, you do them and you show up with the poundage and, and that's kind of that you got to have the, the tenacity to stick through some of those things. And you have the hopes that you think, Oh, this is going to work out profitably. And then you really get down to the brass tacks and the numbers and you start really seeing, okay, this is what it's actually costing us. And I think that was like, at least said that time with Tanya and that's where we first met was in that it was at the small farms conference. Uh, the little uh, session we had with you on the follow-up of that was, was I was able to go into those contract negotiations and say, well, this is what it cost me to grow it in Southern Oregon at Oshala Farm. So if you want me to grow it, I need to earn this much or I'm not going to be here next year. We're, we, we, can't, we can't pay you $1.50 a pound to take our, our echinacea route. It just doesn't work like that. So it was really a powerful tool to be able to go to our buyers with really solid numbers and just be like, no, this is actually what it costs. Look, this is where the numbers go. And they, they said, okay, I get it. You know, and a lot of those people, a lot of it was about relationships, you know, and being able to say, look, we're, we're coming in with the quality that you need. We're coming in with the, the quantities that you need. And this is what it costs us to do it. And um, we've done everything we can to get more efficient to be able to, to, to meet the marketplace pricing from out of the area. You know, that's the other side of it. That's been a really big um, struggle in order to be able to actually get this stuff in. Um, but 
Yeah, it's it's really the more the more knowledge you have, the better able you are to negotiate. I I just had a, a little story to tell. We at one of our um, herb shops um, out of the area wrote wrote a note on their invoice and said. Oh my gosh, when I opened the box of herbs, I started crying. She said, I always am shopping for the best price, but please, please charge me what it takes for you to continue doing this good work. And I was like, those are the customers you want. (laughs) And she said, do you want me to change this invoice? Do you want to change this invoice and resend it to me? And of course we didn't, but um, that's, those are the people you want to work with and building those relationships. And that takes time. So what, what are those quality elements? I mean, what would it be about, a bag of dried herbs that when somebody opens it up, they go, wow, I want more and I'll pay whatever it takes to get it. So part of it is, you know, we call it organoleptics. And so, you know, you're looking at all the senses. So you, you see the bag. That's the first thing you see. So it's color. Is it, you know, a lot of times you'll see, um, you know, in bulk sections where you'll buy herbs, you don't know how many years, especially for they're coming from out of the country. It probably most almost most likely it would never be from this season. It would have been at least from the season before. So you're getting, you know, one, two, three year old herbs, and then they have been milled. And so they're just, you know, going down in value, both medicinally and then the quality of taste. So, so part of that is just that brilliance of color when somebody sees it. And then also being able to actually see what kind of herb it was, the difference, because you might get herbs that are, you know, ground up or milled and all the bags pretty much look the same. But when you get our products, you're like, oh, that's comfrey leaf. And I actually can see the plantain in there. Oh, look, there's borage flowers in that bag, you know, the, the color of the calendula or whatever it is. And then, of course, the scent, you know, when you open the bag or just even the box. I've <laughs> I had another customer say we or, they ordered catnip and their cat was at the UPS had delivered the box and it was in front of the front door and they had two cats and they were like just trying to get into this big giant box of catnip. <laughs> and she said it was hilarious. She came home and their cats were all over this giant box. So, I mean, she's like, I've never had that happen before. Like they smelt it through the carton, you know. So um, I think, you know, the senses is, is definitely something that it makes it unique. So and then the flavor, because you when you have, you make a, make something with uh, herbs that are, you know, fresh and grown and uh, processed and dried properly, they really do taste different. It's just like, uh, you know, a beautiful, amazing vine ripened tomato, or you get a tomato from, you know, Costco that came from wherever, you know, those tomatoes taste very different. So if you can imagine a tomato and a tomato, <laughs> um, you know, that's the same with herbs. So um, people who care about the quality of their product, and also just looking at who grew it and how those people were treated and where did it come from? And also the carbon footprint of, you know, do we want things that have been having to travel all over the world that could actually be grown right here in our own backyard? So those are all things that people look at. And I think the next step of that is for our bigger buyers, the organoleptic test is the first part. And then it goes into the, the actual lab. So the next step is the constituent content, though we really try to not fight or try to chase constituents. They, they want to know how much of the, of the potent uh, part is in that plant. So they're actually testing to see how potent that plant is. They're also testing for mold, yeast, um, you know, total microbiological uh, contaminants, uh, rodent filth, uh, you know, pl- plant parts that aren't of that species. Um, E. coli, salmonella, there's a whole host of, of laboratory tests that these products go through. And um, 
most of our larger buyers are mandated by the FDA and, and these tests are mandated for each lot that comes in. So at the end of the day, the quality needs to pop. It needs to smell great. It needs to taste great. It needs to look great. But for the wholesale market and for, for what we do, it also needs to be really clean, pretty much for like pharmaceutical grade quality and potent. So that means harvesting at the right time and capturing that potency and not allow anything in that post-production side of it to contaminate that product, which is a whole nother part of the business that's really challenging. Talk to me about that because you know I do a lot of work in the food safety area for fresh produce. And you know so we're dealing with trying to avoid contamination. But I'm imagining that it's a little bit different when you're dealing with a a product that's going through this dry kind of this drying process with a lot of airflow involved and then going, you know, possibly going through a chipping process before that. Can you tell me like what are you doing to make sure that you don't get bacterial contamination or you don't get rodent droppings in there? Yeah, you know, it's um it's a major challenge. And the FDA has been really much more stringent on the herb industry as a whole in the last several years. We kind of even since we started this, the whole industry has really tightened up and the standards have really tightened up on on a lot of our product makers. But um the, the most important thing is a growing a good crop in the first place, right? We want to avoid uh powdery mildew and and sick plants coming out of the field. Um and you know soil is a major issue. So most of our crops are overhead irrigated. So we're getting uh, soil splash up, which that can be a challenge in some of our low growing crops in, in testing hot on certain things. We've also are watering out of a ditch an irrigation ditch. So we have other farms um, upstream from us that do, you know, potentially put things into that water that we have to, to mitigate. So really we don't wash anything other than roots. Um, all the tops and flowers, if we wash them, we're just really increasing our, our mold and our yeast content. And we, we can't sell them at that point. It's too hard to dry them back down to meet the standards then. So all the tops and flowers are harvested and dried as is. So, um, a lot of it is training our staff, you know, we're, a lot of the crops we're wearing clean gloves. We're obviously washing hands. We're minimizing hand contact. So the you know even a lot of our mechanical harvesting and things like that. Trying to minimize the number of times we're touching the product. Um, but you know, industry wide, a couple of years ago, as the FDA was starting to kind of come down, everybody like thirty something, thirty eight percent of the crops grown in the United States aren't meeting the FDA standards. So what we're seeing a lot more out in the industry right now is, uh, is sterilization of crops. So steam sterilization has gotten a lot better and they're still able to hold on to some of the flavor, smell, color, and constituent value in a majority of these crops and then steam sterilize them to get them to meet the specifications. And you're seeing a lot more sterilized herb hitting the market, which allows us an opportunity that if we can get our product to meet the specifications without sterilization, we have that extra opportunity then on quality because um, the sterilized product versus unsterilized product is, is night and day in finished quality. Um, so there's, there's remediation opportunities, but it's definitely a huge challenge and, and things come up that sometimes you're just scratching your head. Um, you know, sometimes all of a sudden yeast can be elevated in the field and, and you have no idea why you did everything the same as every other time and it could still meet specs, but you're just like, why, why was it? 
why was the yeast elevated? The mold wasn't elevated. The, you know, our drying time was right. Our, our temperature is right. Was there a higher yeast content in the field because of the humidity out there? And, and I think industry-wide, a lot of the herb farmers are talking about this a lot more because we're being challenged with really producing this really clean, almost far pharmaceutical grade product out of, out of a farm setting. And, um, and it's a constant challenge to try to improve your method to do it better and cleaner. And it, it's not, a, it's not easy. Um, you know, a lot of our vegetables wouldn't meet these specifications. It's not about just not getting people sick. You got to meet certain uh, levels of, of all these things. And it used to be that um, some of these product manufacturers would test for all of these, um, you know, elevated levels after the product was, was made, which makes sense because, you know, you put a plant in alcohol and you make a tincture, well, it's going to kill off all this bad stuff. Well, now they're making them plant, uh, the FDA is making them test the material before it goes into the alcohol to make the tincture. And that's when we started getting into problems. So it was pre-production that these tests, and like Jeff said, it's, you know, now it's a fraction of what it used to be a few years ago which is just super unfortunate for um, farmers everywhere, especially, you know, for smaller scale farmers, because these testings are so expensive. And it's really, I mean, I think that, you know, some of these, uh, you know, establishments and departments are forgetting that these plants are coming from soil. So we're going to, you know, not all bacteria is bad. So <laughs> as an herbalist, we love bacteria. <laughs> It's, it's the number one problem you've got when you're dealing with the FDA or really anybody in the food safety world is remembering the plants are growing outside right? In, you know, in the sunshine and that that's actually something that has real benefits. Right, right. Uh, you really don't want to grow things under fluorescent lights in, in, uh, in high rise buildings. Exactly. Right. And even the FDA is not, they're not so in tune with a lot of the, the farming practices. They're used to kind of more the, the far side of it. So it's interesting when they come out to the farm to do inspections, just what they're looking at and sometimes guiding them in what they should be looking at versus, you know, what they, they think they should be looking at. Um, but you're seeing a push in some of these farms where they're putting farmers out there in lab coats um, and just kind of silly stuff to try to, to, you know, create this, this cleaner aspect. And um, it's been a real tough thing industry-wide. We've been really fortunate and really good at, 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 at working and getting our, our system dialed in to meet, meet the specs. Um, we never were really testing a lot of stuff high, but it's, uh, you know, now we, we rarely ever see something that comes up slightly elevated, but, um, the goal is to get it out the door with, without having any sort of remediation. And, um, and the other thing we saw was when the FDA really kind of came down on the product manufacturers, we lost a lot of the small home herbalists that were making mm -hmm. their little, you know, hand cream or um, balms or a lot of the stuff. And there was a big contraction in the market a couple of years ago as a lot of these people just said, you know what, it's too expensive for me to, to do this. Um, I, I can't go and, and I bought five pounds of this product. I can't go and send it off for a $250 laboratory test to meet the FDA requirements for this, this, you know, uh, soap I'm making or whatever it is. So a lot of the smaller people just said, you know what, I can't comply with this. And it consolidated a lot of the, the, the industry. And for a moment, there was a big contraction in what was being bought in the United States. And kind of right when we really spent a lot of money to become full-time herb farmers, um, there was a contraction in, in contracts. So that's really one of the biggest challenges that we face as a farm um, and the herb world is is really these these specs that are kind of laid out and and meeting them um, is a real challenge and and one of the ones that we almost really got hit with was pesticide compliance 
And um, we were in escrow on a piece of land. Uh, we were living on the other side of Ashland, which is oh, 20 miles or 30 miles from here. And uh, we really wanted to live in that area because our son was going to high school still. And we were really looking for land when our, our last land partnership didn't work out in that area. All our friends were there. Our kid was going to school there. And um, we got into escrow on this piece of land that used to be Old Pear Orchard. And, and fortunately, our mentor said, hey, test the soil because your crops are going to be mandated to not have pesticide residues as an herb farm. So, you know, we had this piece of land. It hadn't been sprayed in, in 25 years. We could have certified organic with, you know, with a memorandum from the previous landowner. But um, when we took soil samples, it came back at such elevated levels of DDT and every other big, nasty, you know, post DDT chemical um, in such large concentrations that the guy that, that did the test said, I wouldn't even let my kid walk down that street. And, um, if we had spent our life savings on that piece of property, we would have grown out all those crops all year, put everything into it. And it would have gotten to our end buyer. And they said, we would have said, Hey, we can't buy this. It's got DDT residue. And a lot of these crops hyper accumulate these things. So, um, clean soil above and beyond certified organic is a requirement. Wow. It's shocking to hear that. that uh, and, and, and obviously, you know, you've kind of got these with the organic standards, right? We, we, we want organic standards to be such in such a way that, that we're encouraging more organic farmers. But I mean, you guys are really do have to take this to this, this other level with everything because you're dealing with medicine. Yeah. And we were so disheartened too, because it was like, we were having already financing challenges and all these other things. We finally found a piece of property. It wasn't the dream piece, but we found this piece of property that we could get into and, and the financing and everything else. And then it was like, Oh no, this isn't going to work. And we started looking at it. 90 something percent of farmland in the United States has been sprayed by, by these things. And these, a lot of these don't go away. DDT doesn't go away. It turns into DDD and DDE. I mean, it's been outlawed for 40 years, but it's still in huge concentrations on these farm soils. So yeah, we don't want to limit people going certified organic because then what's the, op the option is they just continue to spray. So we want to encourage them switching over. But the reality is even our certified organic food has residues of these things, this toxic legacy we've taken on and our specific niche, our specific market requires that these things aren't present. So we were like, where are we ever going to find a piece of property that hasn't been sprayed ever and that we can afford that we can get into financing. And it just, it seemed overwhelming. We, we, we almost gave up. So how did you find you go to old, oh. old school dairy farms that couldn't afford to spray and don't have orchards next to them? <laughs> hey, <laughs> yeah, we got we got really lucky in that regard and, um, you know, found a family that had been in, on the land since the late 1800s. And, um, you know, the gentleman had just sold it to another guy who lost it in foreclosure. But he'd been he'd been born there. He was born on this property and he was, I think, 94 at the time. And um you know, we were able to track him down from farming friends who knew him and knew of this land and suggested it to us. And we were able to track him down. And I, I brought him out here. I drove him out back to the land and he hadn't been there in a couple of years and been his entire life there, you know, and, uh, you know, asking him all these questions and so excited. I'm, you know, going to buy this piece of property and, you know, well, did you guys ever spray? And he goes, Oh, we can never afford that. We just, we just rotated our crops and moved our cows around. And I was like, you know, that's exactly what you want to hear. Of course, we still tested. 
um, we still sent out all those soils for pesticide testing. Nothing came back. Um, it all came back with nothing detectable. But, you know, it, it was a challenge because of the history, you know, and the, and the long term, the people that we were buying from at the last place, they're like, no, we haven't sprayed. So we were thinking, great. Well, you got to look at the, the whole life history of these farms. And it's it's tough. So our, our sale offer was contingent on soil testing. <laughs> On both properties, yeah. thankfully, yeah. and we were able to get out of escrow on the first property based on the pesticide soil test. All right. With that, this is, this is a good spot for us to take a break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Elise and Jeff Higley from Oshala Farm in Applegate, Oregon. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort B and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Jeff talked about the years of trial and error and experience at Oshala Farm that, have, that go into germinating the medicinal herb crops that they grow. Experience is something that's learned and earned with year after year of striving for excellence. And that's exactly the kind of experience the Vermont Compost Company brings to their potting soils. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got his start in the potting soil business as an organic vegetable grower, where he learned that quality transplants really mattered. And then he set out to make compost of potting soils that consistently result in quality transplants. And with every bag and every sling tote of potting soil that leaves the Vermont compost facility, you not only get the best compost and the best ingredients, you get 25 years of experience of making sure that your transplants can get everything they need from just a few cubic centimeters of potting soil year after year after year. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. Perennial supports also provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility tractor and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools that you need to get jobs done across the farm and across the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. All right, and we're back with Elise and Jeff Higley from Oshala Farm in Applegate, Oregon. And so you mentioned in the first half of our conversation about, about kind of some of the challenges of, of farming herbs and how you, you know, you deal with stuff that's, that's scratchy and prickly and gives you rashes and, and, uh, and hurts to breathe. Um, I can't imagine that finding employees for that situation is easy. <laughs> well, in general, in Southern Oregon, it's not easy to find farm employees anyways. So we do have an extra bit of a challenge. And so um, I do think that, you know, what we what we've always tried to do is make sure that we create an environment where people feel respected and listened to and um, really valued. And so I think both, you know, Jeff and I have done a really good job of that. And that helps keep the staff that we do have. Um, and you know, that's our goal is to make sure every day that we can, other than the heat and sweat of it all, that we remember to, you know, give gratitude to those people because um, without our crew, we couldn't do it. I mean, sometimes we do kind of, 
you know, threaten, like, we should just do what the two of us can do. And that's it, you know, but um, try and make it work. But it definitely is difficult on a larger piece of land to do that. So um, we, you know, we do offer, we have a few employees that um, work year round. And we found that that was the most important. A really important part that we have decision that we made because we had, you know, some great crew and because our um, industry is such a niche, you know, crops and people get to know it, you're training them to do this specific type of harvest and then they haven't ever experienced it. And then to get a whole new crew the next year, you're having to retrain everybody. So um, we did really make a commitment last year to keep um, two employees on full year out of our eight. And that was great because the spring before we were stuck scrambling, trying to get people. Um, and because of just the influx of uh, cannabis growing in our area, paying $15, $20 an hour, which we can't afford to do, um, really, really hurt, hurt us that season. And um, so, yeah, we're always, you know, making making little changes and um, just really trying to create systems um, where people feel um listen to and valued, you know, suggestion boxes and they see something, you know, giving them accountability also to things. I think really people like to feel and remember that they are, are valued. And so if we say like, Hey, this is your section where you're really in charge of, and we're counting on you for this, um, they rise to the occasion. And so I feel like each, every one of our employees, um, knows that we really, um, they have a little section in the farm where they're responsible for like, you know, certain trees or certain sections of the field or the watering or, you know, our chickens or whatever it is. It's like people know that, um, not only us, but the rest of the farm is counting on them. So that helps. The employees that you have, are they regular hourly employees or are you guys doing internship arrangements or woofers or things like that? We have all, um, uh, regular hourly employees right now. Mm -hmm. We have done internships in the past. We actually, um, and we love that part of it because both Jeff and I have a background in education, but currently we're not doing that mostly because we just don't have the um, living arrangements to have somebody in there. We have family members living in that space right now. So, but it is, you know, it, that's a whole another part of it, right? When you have somebody on the farm and you commit to having them as an intern, you want to make sure that they're leaving with all the um, expectations that they came on with. And so in the past, we work with Rogue Farm Corps and we really um, enjoyed working with them. So we would do that again if we go back to interns. I would think that the training people to work on a medicinal herb farm would be a real challenge because you've got, you've got just so many crops that nobody even, I mean, at least if you say zucchini to most people, they know what a zucchini looks like. They may not know what the plant looks like or how to grow it or how to pick it, but at least they've seen a zucchini before. Right. I know. And that, that is the challenge too, for, for me, especially, um, you know, I want to have, um, intention in all the plants that we harvest and make sure that people know what they're used for and that they have respect and reverence for them. And so that's a whole nother part of education because some people don't necessarily care about that as much, right? I mean, people value food, at least people that work with it. They're like, you know, slinging in the zucchini or the tomatoes and it feels good because you're like, hey, we're feeding people and this feels good. And if you have an employee that doesn't really value medicinal herbs, then that's kind of really not the person we, we want to have around. We want someone who is respecting what we're bringing in. And I think people do feel really good. And we try and share comments that we get back from customers. It is really challenging. A lot of these crops, 
some of these crops I had never grown before. I didn't know about them. So I'm out there learning at the same time as everybody else and trying to, to train people to do it. And we had some hiccups. I mean, um, a classic one was rue. Um, you know, we grow a lot of rue and we took this big rue contract and I'd always had rue in the garden. And, you know, you look it up and it says some people might be allergic to rue. Well, really, it's, you know, it's, it's similar to parsnips. It's a photoreactive oil that it puts out and you send people out to hand harvest you know a three quarters of an acre of rue there's a lot of oils being spread around at peak at, at the peak potency because that's when we're harvesting it so um we had uh we, we went out and harvested this whole field of rue and the next morning i got a text from one of our employees that said hey you know just so you know poison control doesn't think my projectile vomiting has anything to do with the blistering rash all over my body but i don't think i'm going to be able to come today <laughs> and i was like wait what you know what's what's going on and uh you know it ended up that he finished harvesting the rue took off his shirt you know wiped his back uh kind of transitioning into something else walked with the with his uh <laughs> you know and anyways the uh, elise is giving me the nod no like him no no he ended, he ended up with a lot of blisters anyways it's one of the challenges that we deal with he ended up with a lot of blisters and you know this is like the the things that the learning curve on this stuff is challenging because you know there's very few people that have grown rue on a large scale um and there's a very few people you can go to and say, hey, what's going on with this crop? Um, and we've, we've had to deal with that firsthand, unfortunately. So how do you deal with that? Do you guys end up providing protective equipment to your crew? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everybody wears long sleeves, long shirts. I mean, we're pretty well covered up because on any given day, you could be in the stinging nettle patch and then you could be right over, you know, um, weeding something else or harvesting something. So, you know, we give our lover employees gloves, um, you know, uh, respirating mask, eye protection, ear protection. And we have multiple sets of gloves for working versus harvesting certain plants. Um, like, for instance, our nettle harvesting, we have specific nettle harvesting gloves just because of the challenge of that. We definitely do our best to mitigate a lot of these problems. But, you know, we are in close proximity with plants that do sting and itch. And, and some of them don't really become a problem until we get them in the dryer, like borage, for instance, or mullein leaf. Um, once those things are dry, the, the, it turns into like fiberglass. The, the dust uh, itches so bad. So, you know, it is hard. Like the crew will be like, don't take borage contracts anymore. You know, <laughs> and, uh, there's definitely things they don't like to grow um, just because of those challenges. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those things are sometimes, you know, not borage, for instance, but some of those crops that are more challenging, they're more profitable because of that. And less people want to do them because of those challenges. So as a, as an employee or as an employer, you're constantly in this balance of like, what can we do safely and, and, and keep our people safe, but still, you know, bring this to market um, because there is a demand. So. And when you're hiring employees, do they come on the farm knowing what to expect? Not always. Some people come because they are really interested in herbs um, and then some people come just because they're looking for a job and pretty quickly know if they're going to work out or not. So, um, yeah, so it's, you know, and some people just get really excited about learning something new. So we do try and put little, um, you know, ID monographs of different plants that people are harvesting and what um, people are wanting them for. So people know what's going on. Now, Elise, you mentioned that the legal marijuana market has kind of changed things for you there in Oregon. How long ago was, was cannabis legalized in Oregon? 
think it's been too growing season. So you bought into the farm before that land boom happened. Yeah, we got really lucky. We would have never been able to buy our property today if uh, in this current state with the legalization of marijuana. Yeah, it would be a few million dollars. <laughs> what kinds of changes has it brought to the labor market for you guys? I mean, I think with all, with and you know, I don't want to generalize with all of the cannabis movement because, of course, with any kind of crop, there's good and bad farmers or growers in that. Um, but I definitely think there's, um, you know, the urge that people are just like, we call it the green rush here, right? That people are just like jumping for the money and for the quick fix. And they're not necessarily thinking of the long-term ramifications. And so for us, it's kind of the same with the employees. It's like, oh, well, I can work seasonally on this farm and get $20 an hour, but they're not thinking, but it's not year round and it's not necessarily something that I like doing or that I appreciate the people or whatever. So, um, you know, it's been hard and a lot of people, you totally understand where you have another farm that can afford to be able to pay their employees $20 an hour because they're making that much money. I, I get it, you know, but it is a challenge when you can't be the one to pay the $20 an hour. And, um, you also in some ways are probably working a lot more physically and harder and longer hours possibly for most of the year than, you know, than other farms. So it is a challenge. And especially when, um, you know, it's all in the neighborhood, it's not like, you know, people are having to move out of their area to go do this high paying job. It's like, it's right there in their backyard. So uh, it definitely has been a challenge for the market in general. And we have very, I don't know of any new vegetable farmers that have moved to our area because of the, you know, the high cost of land and the low availability of farm labor is really a challenge. Not even just vegetable farmers, but any non-cannabis farmers. And I think anybody that was interested in agriculture or growing something, uh, it was an easy transition for them to, well, I can make more money and uh, it's still working with plants. With the cost of labor being high out there. What has that driven you to make any changes in, in how you do your work out in the fields? Uh, yes, we've definitely done the best we can to, um, streamline. I mean, we've had to, you know, upgrade some of our, become more efficient in our our practices out in the field so we can limit labor. Um, a lot of our crops are high labor crops, which is a challenge, especially in the flower picking and stuff like that. But we've, we've had to kind of adjust things to accommodate for that. And we've, we've had to make some purchases to help accommodate for that too. Right. So we've mechanized in a bunch of different ways with harvesting techniques and so that we can, I mean, people are surprised that we actually um, work with a staff of, you know, only eight people for most of the season. It's like we have a lot of acreage in, but yet we do, it's that fine balance of being able to do what you need to do by hand, but also make things efficient with, with um, equipment. So. Jeff always likes to buy new equipment. <laughs> I don't like paying for new equipment. <laughs> what do harvest aids look like on a medicinal farm? Well, typically, um, you know, the morning we're waiting for the dew to come off the crop because that's just one more thing to dry. So, you know, we don't normally start harvesting until nine or 10, which is totally the opposite of the veggie world. Um, we're not trying to harvest first. That's usually when we're out weeding. Um, and doing some of our more physical hard stuff that we can get done before it gets hot. And um, we have a couple of different harvesters. Um, Originally, it took us a a whole day with our whole crew to get one of our drying bays filled. A couple of years ago, uh, we bought a a harvester that went on the front end loader of our tractor that allowed us to fill one of those bays with uh, basically five people in about four hours. 
And this year we were able to buy another harvester, which is uh, we got from Wintergreen Farm up in uh, Notai, Oregon. And they had been doing some herbs back in the day and they've moved out of it. And um, now we can fill really all three of our dryers with three people in in about two and a half hours, you know, maybe two hours. So we've become more efficient in that. But basically, like this morning, we went out to go harvest mugwort. Um, so we fire up the, the harvester. We go out. Um, the harvester that I um, our main harvester now is a old uh, swather. It's a JD 800 um, that's been heavily modified. I think originally it was a 10 to 20 foot um blade on the front it's been brought down to a seven foot cutting bar and um basically it 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 comes in on a reel it hits the the conveyor belts that bring it into the center which would normally create a nice wind road then to come in and follow with your um hay baler and bale hay where uh, the machine um, has been modified to have a conveyor underneath there that actually takes the herbs underneath the driver and back up a chute and drop it in a trailer behind the driver so um we can get into a bed of you know let's say for instance mugwort this morning you know our, our rows our, our fields are really kind of all different sizes just because of the shape of our property but most of our fields are 500 to seven foot 700 foot long rows so we can typically now with this new system with me driving um and one person in the trailer and one person just transporting um, product back and forth to the dryer, I could do a 700 foot row bed in under eight minutes. Um, just driving down, we could set our height. I could adjust it with my foot pedal and just and just work down the row. So it's become a lot more efficient than the days when we were hand harvesting. Is there stuff that you're still hand harvesting on the farm? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of stuff. I mean, all our flowers are pretty much hand harvested. So like calendula flower, we're picking every four or five days by hand. Red clover blossom, chamomile. We'll use a, we use a hand rake, but it's still hand harvested. And then we do a lot of like our more specialty products for fresh market and for some of the more direct higher end buyers um, who want a specialty product. We'll go out and hand, hand cut stuff. Um, we also sell stinging nettles at the, the grocery stores. So um, we have a distributor that sells our products up and down the, the Pacific Northwest. So we sell stinging nettles in half pound, half pound bags, um, in the produce department right next to the bag lettuce. So that's all hand harvested. The other side is the root harvest. We do quite a bit of digging. <laughs> and the other thing is we do a lot of seeds and we grow, we actually, we live in a GMO free, um, county as far as crops. So we've been taking advantage of some of that. And I am really excited about like, you know, Jeff sometimes talks about the first year that we planted here, we spent, I don't know, close to $10,000 or something on seed. And then what was it? What are the, what are the statistics? Uh, I think in next year we were down to like six. And now, you know, I think we spent a few hundred dollars in seed this year. But the other really interesting aspect of that is um, we had a lot of times where people would call us for contracts and we'd say, oh, I think I can do that. And then I'd go out to buy the seed and I could not find enough seed in North America to... to to meet the crop demands. I'd go to Europe. I'd buy all the seed in Europe. I literally buy all the seed I could find in the world on that crop and come back to my buyer and say, you know what? I'm only going to be able to put a, get a quarter of what you want because there's not enough seed available. Um, and I, I go out and say, you know, we can harvest seed this year. And then next year, hopefully we can get to the, the poundage that you're looking for or two years down the line, we could finally hit the numbers. But that was a huge challenge is even finding seed that was actually true to type 
because that's a whole nother part of the, the process is it has to DNA test out. It can't just look like echinacea purpurea. It has to actually be echinacea purpurea <laughs> from the DNA test. So, um, you know, and a lot of times we get seed and it would, you know, for instance, we got uh, bugleweed seed. There's two different types of bugleweed. We planted out an acre of bugleweed and both varieties of that bugleweed were in that acre. And it was like two of one and one of the other. And, and then we had to go in and hand harvest the whole thing and separate out the two varieties so that we could give our, our customer what they wanted. Um, so the seed part is a major dynamic that we've been able to not only save a lot of money by growing, by growing seed, but we've also been able to sell seed too. Um, and a lot of the seed is medicinal or is, is used for, for other purposes. So it's culinary or medicinal or whatever else. But um, we harvest a lot of seed for actual consumption as well. Like we just did a bunch of nettle seed. Mm-hmm. How does that seed harvest work? Is that is that a hand process like with the flowers? Oftentimes, yeah, it depends. The um, like the nettle seeds all hand harvested. So we're out there and, you know, typically to get nettle seed, the, the field's six to eight feet tall of nettle. Um, and we're out there hand stripping nettle seed off off the stem um, before it becomes ripe. So they actually want it while it's still green because that's when the, that's when the constituents are, are present. Once it dries out, it's not there. So, you know, sometimes we're, we're looking at the right moment to harvest that. Um, some of the things we can go out and, um, you know, we can, we can harvest with our harvester and some things actually will, will, the seed will ripen up in the dryer and we could pull seed off the dryer floor. Um, if we don't dry it too hot and it will, you know, we can use that. So like California poppy, for instance, or some, there's some crops that we, we can actually harvest and get a seed crop off the dryer floor as kind of this little bonus. But for the majority we're out there hands specifically choosing the seed we're looking for. It's just every crop's a little bit different. You know, we grow so many of them. Well, I suppose that's one of the advantages too of being such a large scale grower is that when you're doing that selection process of going out and, you know, selecting the seed that you want to have for next year, you don't really have a lot of concerns about population size. You know that you've got an adequate population and you're not going to be dealing with inbreeding just because of the scale of stuff that you're doing. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, we, you also have enough scale where you see a lot of variation in a field and it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, there's some crops that aren't, that we found that we can't do very profitably like calendula flower, for instance, it, you know, our harvest costs are like 80 to 85% of the entire cost of growing that crop, just going out there and picking it. And, um, we were growing a variety that has a high resin content, but it's a fairly small flower. And one of our buyers said, Hey, you know, we we're buying another crop from somebody else and they have a little bit larger flower. Maybe we could try to find a larger flower. So we've been really working to breed larger flowers, breed, you know, brighter orange double flowers and going after specific genetics to try to do that so that every pick of a flower that it is, it's, it's twice as much weight as this other crop. And, um, you know, so some of it's like trying to actually breed into a profitable crop, what otherwise wouldn't be here in Southern Oregon. Have you guys been able to see shifts in the genetics in your crops? Have you have you started to see results on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're we're working on this uh, Oshala Gold Calendula seed here that I think we're going to come out with before too long. But you know, um, it's tough. I mean, there's definitely you know challenges to, to getting that happen, and there's a bit of culling process that kind of is counterintuitive to the rest of our business. Um, but you could see the benefits of it. And like this year we're, our, you know, calendula, it's a, 
the orange is actually a recessive trait. They actually want to stay yellow and, um, which is a fine, it doesn't change the, the value of it, but the look, when you have those bright orange flowers, it just pops out of the bag. So trying to get that bright orange flower with the double flower versus a single cup, um, you know, the weight is, is two to three times as much per flower. So we're seeing now where all of our crops, we, we've kind of gone away from those smaller flower ones and our fields are larger flowers. And we've been, we've been successful in breeding that over the last couple of years, not quite ready to bring it out on the, on the market because there's still some variation out there and some, you know, a little bit more, um, selection that needs to take place, but, um, I'm definitely seeing some progress with it. That's really cool. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Thanks. One of the other things that you mentioned early on in our conversation was the fact that you have a lot of acreage dedicated to wild crafting. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not a major part of our business. Um, I mean, we have friends who only wildcraft for the herb industry. That's what they do for a living. And they travel all over the place, harvesting Pipsisua and Hawthorne berries and all these different things. We had, um, when we were living up um, in a little higher elevation beforehand, we started taking on some of these wildcraft contracts because we were on 166 acres that was mostly forest. So we were harvesting um, Usnia, which is like uh, the moss on the tree, or it's a lichen that grows on the trees. Um, and a few of these other, other plants and so when we moved down here, we saw some crops that we knew we could sell um, that were really prevalent. Um, it's it's not a major part of our business, but um, the industry is really moving from wild crafted to certified organic because of, you know, mostly because of the issue with uh, sustainability. You know, are they over harvesting these these stands out in the wild? And um, so being in a place that's contained, but it's a crop that maybe you can't propagate. Um, we're dealing with a lot of these things that, that they still haven't figured out how to put onto a, a row system. Well, they can't get it to germinate consistently, or if they do, it's not producing as much as they put in to, to get the crop to, 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 to grow. So um, some of them have to still be wild crafted and having a space that's secure um, where they know it hasn't been, been sprayed, where they know all these different things. They, they really like that extra level of um the organic certification on top of the wild crafted so we we usually spend the springs up in the in the forest before our fields get going we have a few crops we harvest and um and then another one we do in the fall but none of them are major parts of our business um monetarily but they do bring in some cash flow and again just circling back to a place that we started in talking about bringing in some cash flow can you talk a little bit about the value-added products that you're doing and, and the direct sales that you guys have to the stores and to the, the distributors who are, who are distributing your, your teas and, and your other herbs rather than, rather than distributing the, the bulk medicinal herbs? Yeah, we have our value-added products, our tea blends that we make. Um, we sell them on our website. We sell them um, in different stores around the area. We have a distributor, a um, hummingbird distributor. Um, delivers them across the West Coast. And so that's kind of the root of what we started with, you know, that kind of the impetus of the herb growing was how do we get enough herbs to launch this tea line and then ended up we're, you know, growing exclusively herbs pretty much. So um, we ha also have bottled spices and we do um, flavored vinegars with herbs like nettle vinegar and things um, and a mixed herb vinegar. So um, it's pretty exciting to know that, you know, our products are getting all over, although we also are, you know, our point of really trying to localize medicine, uh, or I should say herbs, our point of growing herbs and keeping it domestic um, 
demand is really key. So we want people to get those products from people that live around them for the most part. So we like, we don't ship out of the country, even though we've been asked to do that before. Um, we really feel like, you know, what grows around you is probably um, the best herbs for people to consume. So that's also the name of our farm. Oshala farm is it's Oshala, little, little Osha root. It's Legusticum grayi instead of Legusticum porteri, which is an endangered uh, at risk plant. And so we're just kind of getting that awareness out to people like, hey, if you're going to use herbs, use what goes grows around you and in your region. Um, so we really like to try and, you know, walk our talk on that. But um, as far as the value added stuff goes, it's been a great process, but it's a whole nother business, right? You're, you're farming, you've got all these other things, and then you've got this value added line. So it's like, oh, you know, the sales and, you know, the pricing and the packaging and all these things that... Um, the demos. the demos. Yeah, the infamous demos. You thought you were tired of fire, farmer's markets, then you go to do demos. <laughs> so um, it is, you know, it's definitely a challenge, but it's also pretty fun. So we're uh, having a good time doing it. Awesome. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we got to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast in general is Supported by Store It Cold's CoolBot. Way back in 2000, the year I started Rock Spring Farm, the manager of the local food co-op complained that lettuce from local producers lasted for just days in her cooler, while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. So what was all that about 2,000 miles fresher? I later found out that none of the local growers had a walk-in cooler. 17 years later, this is still the number one complaint I hear from produce buyers. You have got to get your produce cold before you deliver it to your customers. The difference between now and then is that now there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit, saving up to 83% in upfront costs and up to 42% on your monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FTF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. Storeitcold.com. Jeff, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Oh, I'd have to say I'm pretty smitten with this new harvester I've got. Um, you know, it just took us a long time to get product in efficiently. And I remember going to some bigger herb farms, volunteering and out there picking calendula flowers with them and watching these big harvesters go by and think I am never going to be able to compete. And, uh, they just don't make these things. You can't go and buy an herb harvester. So it was really uh, good luck to be able to find this one from somebody who's, who'd gotten out of the, that, that niche. And, um, it's just been, a, a huge uh, advantage to our system out here on the farm. So definitely probably my, my new favorite. Elise, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Our hands. <laughs> I'm still old school, you know, hand harvester. I like to really be connected with the plants when we're out there. So yeah, I'm, uh, Jeff and I are a good uh, juxtaposition. <laughs> Elise, what's the best selling crop on your farm? Oh, that's a hard one. I mean, I think that nettle is probably, I would say like our, token plant because it's the first crop that we planted when we moved in and it takes us through the season from the beginning of spring with our fresh plant um, harvesting you know to different grocery stores and such and then all the way to the end of the season and we do the whole plant um, you know the seed so I feel like that is kind of like I don't know it's a kind of keeps us keeps us going the nettle for sure do your neighbors ever give you grief <laughs> over the fact that you're planting nettle yeah, well, it doesn't grow as crazy here as in other places, but yes, a lot of people are surprised at what we grow. In fact, one of our neighbors who um, is actually relatives of the people who were here for 
100 years, uh, the family, um, the Hill family, he, he said, you know, kept looking over at everyone. He's like, I didn't know what to think of you guys. And then people asked me, what are they doing back there at Oshala Farm? And he's like, they just plant all this stuff that we pull out. <laughs> so like, yeah, comfrey and plantain. Plantain, mullein. <laughs> so it's pretty funny because like, you know, I've never seen anybody work as hard as you guys. So I guess you aren't too bad. <laughs> so it's nice. It's a good compliment coming from the old school. That's right. There's no, there's nothing like working hard to, uh, yeah. to your neighbors out in the country. Yeah. Earn a little respect. <laughs> Well, Lisa, if nettles is, is the best-selling crop on your farm, what's your favorite crop? Well, that's the one. I think, and maybe that's, maybe that's why, is because I'm so excited about it that I probably, you know, exuberate that ex- excitement and I'm always pushing nettle on people. Like, if there's one plant you're going to use, you know, take nettle. So um, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But it's definitely been, I don't know. What about you, Jeff? You have a favorite plant? Uh, you know, I've really fallen in love with blue vervain. I think we're one of the biggest growers of blue vervain in the country. And, uh, you know, not that every year has been perfect with it. We've had some challenges, but I just, I really love the crop. It grows well here. It's, it's just beautiful. The, the, the pollinators love it. Um, and you actually, you gotta be careful cutting it because as you get down the end of the row, I mean, there's a trillion bees in that field and the bees don't actually dissipate. They just get in a smaller section. They all like congregate around the last flowers and that last row as you get towards the end it is so dense in bees that yeah, i've thought about suiting up in my bee suit um <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy but it's just the I, I just love the crop it's just it's really beautiful if you guys could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer selves one thing what would it be we we took on a lot of debt to get to where we were we are and i think that was uh, really scary for us and it was really challenging for a long time. We're finally kind of coming out of that, that dark hole. And I think for what we're doing, we could not have made it without getting to a certain scale and getting a certain amount of, of equipment and things here started right away. And I, I think I see a lot of people struggle with a lot of little things and kind of trying to get by and, and doing a little of this and a little of that and a little of the other thing. And, and I was always really consistent about, we're going to go all in on something and we're going to, we're going to get to a scale that we're profitable at it, you know, and it, you know, at least like, oh, I want to get some goats. I go, well, we're going to get 150 goats and we're going to become goat farmers then. And, uh, you know, so it was really for us, it was like, really picking a niche and going after it and, and getting to the scale you need to be to, to work in that niche. Awesome. How about you, Elise? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we did enough research to know that it was possible to, you know, make a living doing herb farming. And I think just keeping with that tenacity and that dream and seeing it through really rocky roads. <laughs> so it's been a challenge, like Jeff said, to get into as much debt as we have and to just keep believing, like, are you sure we should keep, you know, there's a quite a few years where we just kept spending more money and wondering if it was the right decision. And now we're getting to the point where we're like, okay, we're being able to pay off stuff. And that feels really good. Awesome. Elise and Jeff, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thanks, Chris. It was really nice to be part of it. Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 133 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Higley. That's H-I-G-L-E-Y. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by Local Food Marketplace, providing an integrated, 
scalable solution for farms and food hubs to process customer orders, including online ordering, harvesting, packing, delivery, invoicing, and payment processing. Additional funding for Transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show. That would be totally awesome. You can also talk to us in our show notes on our on the farmer to farmer podcast.com website. You can tell your friends about us on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmer to farmer slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world. You can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmer to farmer And I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.